from it. Hey, I remember in uh, my first year of college, I was taking my basic introduction courses, and I was a business major, and actually an economics major, and so one of the first classes I took was microeconomics. And I remember learning for the first time about opportunity costs. And opportunity cost is this kind of technical concept that economists use to try to explain the reasons we spend our money the way we do. Concept comes down to the basic idea that anytime you buy one thing, you are essentially deciding not to buy anything else with that money. But opportunity cost also comes down to the way we spend our time and, by extension, the way we spend our life. And so as an example, if you take an economics class that meets on Monday mornings at 9 a.m., you can't take a management class that meets at the same time. You've chosen economics over management. If you're a kid, you've been saving up your allowance, your parents take you to Walmart, and you buy a new Lego set, you can't go tomorrow and buy a video game. By buying the Lego set, you've said no to the video games. If you go back for seconds today at lunch and double dip on the pie, you are choosing for your pants to fit a little snugger tomorrow, right? This is opportunity cost. This is the way these things work. You may not know the concept, but you know the idea. When you make a decision, you are choosing against all alternate possibilities. I was thinking about opportunity costs this week as I was preparing to kick off this sermon series about knowing and following Jesus, because I got to thinking about all the times in the Gospels that Jesus extended the invitation to follow me. Follow me. I thought about the way Simon and Andrew and James and John in Mark chapter 1 hear this call, follow me. And they leave everything behind. They left behind their families, their careers. They said yes to Jesus, and they said no to everything else. Thought about Levi or Matthew, who's at work one day collecting taxes. And Jesus says, follow me. And he just walks out on the job to follow Jesus. And this is great personal cost that these men took on in order to follow Jesus. They said yes to him and no to everything else. I got to wonder, what would make a person choose that? What factors came together in their minds to make the decision to follow Jesus as one of his disciples a no-brainer? And I think if you think about it, you'll come to a similar conclusion that when they saw Jesus, when they heard Jesus, when they examined who He was and what He was saying, they heard something that gave them hope. Following Jesus was worth leaving everything else behind. If only what He said was possible would be true. And they might have lived 2,000 years ago, but I like to think that these men knew what you and I face every day. Their world was a lot like ours, you know, uh, amid all the joy of memories we make with our families and friends, and the occasional personal accomplishment that comes from career or from achieving some kind of goal. There's also this lingering threat always in the back of our minds that we could wake up tomorrow and it could all just vanish. 
that there's disappointment right over the horizon or disaster, financial disaster, personal disaster, relationships, disasters. I mean, at any time it could crash in. There's even the fear of death. And so some people see all this stuff and they choose to insulate themselves from it. And so they'll pursue power and wealth, just thinking, hey, if I could get to this next place in my career, or if my emergency fund just had one more zero at the end, then I'd feel secure and safe. They try to insulate themselves from these worst-case scenarios. Other people, I think, just try to uh, escape them, ignore them. They throw themselves into the pursuit of pleasure. They're going to live it up while they can, eat, drink, be merry, for tomorrow we die. But then here comes Jesus, offering another way, a third way, a way that looks at the brokenness of our lives and our world and acknowledges it, and yet provides hope that there might be a way out of it. Maybe the stuff that's hanging over our heads doesn't have to dictate the decisions we make. Maybe there's another way. Maybe there's some way of hope. See, I think the gospel clarifies for us the decisions that we have to make. It shows us the great value of choosing yes to Jesus and no to everything else. And at the same time, it warns us. I mean, Jesus is honest with you, with me, that the cost of saying no to the invitation to follow will end in disaster. And so you have your options. Which will you say yes to and which will you say no to? And so this morning, as we kick off this sermon series, we're going to be talking about knowing and following Jesus for the next four weeks. I want you to see the hope of the gospel. That you don't have to let the lingering stuff of life dictate the decisions you make. Jesus came to give you abundant life now and eternal life with him forever. I boil that down to one simple point that I want you to see today. When you know Jesus, you can live with hope. When you know Jesus, you can live with hope. So let's work through this passage David just read for us and let me prove it to you. That when you know Jesus, you can live with hope. Now we pick up the story of Jesus' life uh, almost at the very end of his three years of public ministry. He'd already called 12 disciples and had invested his life in them and along the way had also acquired plenty of opponents, people who were out to get him. And John tells us that when he was in Jerusalem one December for the Feast of Dedication, those opponents gathered around him in the eastward-facing porch of the temple and they challenged him. Looking for a straight answer. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. I think this is a loaded demand. I don't think these men are genuinely questioning Jesus because if he is the Christ, they want to worship him. I think they're looking for an opportunity to corner him and looking for a clear statement with which they could charge him of blasphemy. See, the Jews had a very clear expectation of who the coming Christ or Messiah was going to be. And the occasion of the Feast of Dedication had a way of bringing these expectations to the surface. So you could search the Old Testament and learn a lot about the Jewish feasts. 
but you won't find anything about the Feast of Dedication. It was established in the second century BC as a commemorative festival in honor of a priest warrior named Judas Maccabeus, who had led a successful revolt against the Romans and had rededicated the temple in 164 BC. And so the Jews set aside eight days every year that they were going to remember this rededication of the temple. And they still celebrate it today. We call it Hanukkah. It comes around every December. And so Jesus is down in Jerusalem with these men, caught up in the political and religious fervor, remembering when the hammer of God, that's what they call Judas Maccabeus, the hammer of God struck down the Romans and reestablished true worship at the temple. You see, they thought that maybe when the Messiah came, he was going to look a lot like Judas Maccabeus. Here were the Romans again, ruling in Jerusalem, and they thought we need somebody else to do what Judas had done a couple hundred years before and run them out of town. So they asked Jesus, Are you the Messiah? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. But if you know anything about Jesus, you know that he never satisfied his opponent's demands for a straight answer. He never gave them what they wanted. Instead, he liked to talk about himself in symbols and in signs. So he told them, Listen, I have told you, and you don't believe. And the works I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. See, according to Jesus, the three years of life that he had lived publicly, the way he had carried himself, the miracles he had done, the things he had said and taught, those were enough. If only people had eyes to see and ears to hear, they had everything they needed to know who he really was. John goes to great lengths in his gospel to make the same point that Jesus makes here in John 10, 25. John records for us seven miracles. He calls them signs, and he raises them up to the surface of Jesus' life. He tells the story of his life by talking about these seven signs. He starts out in John 2 with Jesus at the wedding feast in Cana when he turned water into wine. Then in John 4, he healed a nobleman's son. And in John 3, he healed the lame man at the pool of Bethesda. In John 6, he fed the 5,000 and walked on water. In John 9, he healed the man who was born blind. And in John 11, he rolled into Bethany and he raised up his friend Lazarus from the dead. These seven signs were enough. You want to know Jesus? Look at the signs of his life. That's what he tells his opponents. At the end of his gospel, John states his purpose in this way. This is John 20, verse 30. He said, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the seven signs, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. See, each miracle that Jesus performed proved his authority and power. If you'd been there, and you'd had the eyes to see and the ears to hear, you wouldn't have had to ask if you're the Christ, tell us plainly. You'd have known. You'd have put the pieces together, and you'd have recognized, just like the disciples did, that he is the Christ. But Jesus' opponents were unable to see, and they were unable to hear. He didn't fit their mold of what they thought the Messiah could and would be, and so they rejected him. But there's hope, right? Because 
There are some people who are not his sheep, but then he says plainly in verse 27 that there are some people who believe. He said, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The sheep hear his voice. They know him, and they follow him. That explains, I think, the choice of those first disciples when they heard the words, follow me, to leave everything behind and follow. They saw in him something that other people didn't see. They heard his words, and they saw his works, and they knew what kind of man he was. That's what I think it means to know Jesus. It means to see his works, and to hear his words, and to believe. To believe he is who he says he is, that he is the Christ, that he is the Son of God, that he is the one promised by the prophets. This kind of knowledge is totally different than what you might think of when you think about knowledge of God. Most people settle for facts and trivia, even theology and doctrine. But of course the Jews knew that. They had been taught to profess, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord, He is one. They knew all the details about the Messiah. They could point you to the chapter and verse of Isaiah. They could talk about the covenant that God promised in Jeremiah. They knew a lot about God, but they didn't know God. When Jesus talks about the knowledge that leads to life, he's talking about a knowledge that goes beyond facts and trivia, a knowledge that is best described through the intimate relationship of a shepherd with a sheep. You know, where the sheep look to the shepherd to provide them everything they need, where they depend on his care and trust in his provision. We're talking about a knowledge that goes beyond Scripture memory and doctrinal quotes like, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, 1 Timothy 1.15. We're talking about a knowledge that says, Jesus died to save me of my sins. A personal appropriation of the facts about God. It goes beyond the cliche, God provides, to the kind of confidence that's born of faith, like David in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. This is the deep, intimate knowledge of God that we're talking about. I think it's the knowledge that those first disciples had. I think it's the knowledge that God wants you to have. He doesn't want you to settle for knowledge about Him. He wants you to know Him, to have the personal, intimate relationship that's best described as a sheep depending on the shepherd. I think it's the kind of knowledge that Paul had talked about in Philippians 3. He said, Whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted loss for the sake of Christ. Talk about opportunity costs here. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own, a righteousness that's derived from the law, but the righteousness of God that depends on faith, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings, even being conformed to His death, in order that I may attain the resurrection of the dead. That's the knowledge of God that we're talking about. And when you know Jesus like that, when you know Him, 
you can live with hope. Right? Isn't that what he says next in verse 27? He says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And 28, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. Look, well, you know Jesus like a sheep knows the shepherd. Look at what is yours. Jesus promises to give his sheep eternal life. Eternal life. I I love the concept of eternal life, don't you? It's one of those things, I mean, I think I was four or five years old when I first started hearing John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. That's like the basics, isn't it? That's the ABCs of following Jesus, knowing that trusting in Christ, you receive eternal life from God. We have hope when we know Jesus because we've been promised a life that will go on forever. He said in John 8, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. He told Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? As followers of Jesus, we have hope because we know that God sent His Son, Jesus, who lived a life totally unlike any life that had ever been lived before. He perfectly obeyed God's commands to every last jot and tittle, perfectly fulfilling the law. Now, at the end of his perfect life, these opponents finally got their way, and he offered himself up as a sacrifice for sinners like you and me. His friends took him down from the cross, and they prepared his body, and they laid him in that tomb, and three days later, he rose again. And because of that, Paul can say in Romans 6, death is no longer master over him. More than that, we're convinced that he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in us. Listen, maybe you've come across the people in some corners of Christianity who are embarrassed to talk about heaven. You know, they sometimes say this, you can be so heavenly-minded that you're of no earthly good. You ever hear that? And some people maybe can go to seed on the concept of heaven and they can fill up their imagination with all kind of speculative and fanciful interpretations of Scripture. Maybe. But isn't the hope of heaven the heart of the gospel? I mean, Paul says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. I mean, I love my life here. I love my family. I love this church. I'm excited for the future. And I was thinking about it this morning. Maybe I've just finished a third of my life. Maybe God will let me live to 99. Maybe he'll be, let me be like Derek and live to a couple hundred years old. But who knows? <laughs> who knows? I love this life. It's great. Now, I want to live it as long as I can. But you know what? Paul says the sufferings of this present time aren't worth being comp- compared to the glory that's going to be revealed to us on that day. Look, heaven is the hope promise to you and me. We live with hope today because we know that, yeah, someday my moral life's going to be over. I'm going to breathe my last breath. My family and friends are going to gather around a casket and they're going to say goodbye to me. It's going to happen to you too. But in that moment, 
while they're gathered and crying, you know, you're going to be enjoying the life Jesus has promised you. For to be absent from the body is to be where? Present with the Lord. And you know that one day when all things are done, when he returns from heaven with his army of angels and all the saints who've gone before us, that he'll raise up every dead Christian from the grave and he'll transform our bodies and we will live with him forever in his eternal kingdom. In that place, there will no longer be any death, no longer any mourning or crying or pain. Brothers and sisters, we can live with hope when we know Jesus because we know that God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. Hope you know that hope today. And at the same time, while eternal life is rightly called life that goes on forever, it's everlasting to everlasting. There's also another dimension that we need to think about. It's not what one scholar calls pie in the sky when you die. That's not all eternal life is. There's some good news for us right now. Jesus says there's a different kind of life available to you and me because of his resurrection. He says it in John 10.10, 10, The thief comes only to kill, steal, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. When you know Jesus, you don't have to choose between the good life now and eternal life later. You get to start living the good life now. See, in John's gospel, this phrase eternal life is almost the functional equivalent of what Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about when they talk about the kingdom of God. See, Jesus came preaching the nearness of God's kingdom, the times fulfilled, repent and believe the gospel. He was telling everybody who'd listen that God was about to do something amazing and he was about to usher in all the end time promises that he'd made through his prophets. And Jesus, in his resurrection, accomplished it. He inaugurated a new age. Because of that, one scholar likes to call the term eternal life really the life of the ages. Because what it is, is it's, it's not just long life like so we're immortal. It's a whole different kind of life, the kind of life that you and I are meant to receive in Christ. That's what Paul says in Romans 6, that we've been buried with Christ in baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. So you're still living, but you get some kind of new life. Paul says it in 2 Corinthians 5. If anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. That means if you know Jesus, you're already experiencing the life of the age to come. You've received the down payment of your future inheritance. That means you get all the blessings that are going to be yours for eternity. You get forgiveness and victory over your sin. You get personal possession of the Holy Spirit, that God takes up residence within you so that what is going to be yours in the future, that you'll always be with God, hey, God is already with you now. You'll get fellowship with God so you can walk into His presence through the blood of Christ. You get adopted into His family. And best of all, you get an assurance of your salvation. You can know that you're saved. Because of that, you don't have to worry about the disappointment and death that lingers over us and is always in the back of our mind. Instead, you can live with hope. And so Jesus promises his sheep eternal life. He also promises us eternal security. And that's where he gets at the second half of verse 28. 
He says, no one will snatch them out of my hand. For my Father who's given them to me is greater than all. And no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. This is one of the greatest promises in the Bible. If you, the type of person who underlines or highlights or stars, this is something you ought to star and think about. Yeah, because what this is, is God's promise to you that the good life Jesus came to bring can never be taken from you if it's yours. That if you know Jesus, you can be confident that the work God began in you will be brought to completion. That Jesus is going to preserve you through whatever storms life throws your way, and you will one day see him face to face. Look, this is totally different than the way we're tempted to manage our worries and fears about our future. You know, we want to insulate ourselves, right, by getting that extra zero or getting to that next step in our career. We want to escape it all and just act like it's not coming. But instead, Christ gives us a security that's unshakable. It's a security that doesn't rest on your ability to walk on the straight and narrow and to clean yourself up when you dirty yourself up again. Instead, Jesus says it rests on the sovereign power of God. I love the way he says this. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And then, like, as if you're worried that, okay, well, that's great, but who are you? He says, my Father who's given to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. What he means is, he and the Father are perfectly united in their intent. They have one mind about this thing. But it's not like Jesus says, hey, he's going to do his best to keep you safe. He says, hey, all the power of heaven, all that God has at his disposal is aligned to make sure that what I have given you, what I have promised you, what is yours in me can never be taken away. No one can snatch you from my hand, for my Father is greater than all. That doesn't give you hope. I I, I don't know what will. I mean, this is the hope that surely we see throughout the Scriptures, the hope that rests on the confidence that though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is genuine hope. The hope that's taught to us in our hymns. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. This is the power of Christ in me. When through fiery trials your pathways shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not harm thee, I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. This is the hope of the gospel. Surely, that's the hope that Paul busts out in praise for in Romans chapter 8. I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing can separate us from the love of God which is in Christ our Lord. Because of that, I know you and I have a lot of choices to make in life. Each day we're met with thousands of them. What are we going to wear? What are we going to eat for breakfast? Who are we going to talk to today? What are we going to do at work? Are we going to make the best use of our time? Or are we going to fritter away the day on YouTube and Facebook? you got lots of choices, okay? But after what we've seen today, how can you afford to say no to Christ? 
I mean, is it really too costly for us to give up the frantic, hurried life of worry that we so often live? I mean, is it really too much to give up control and entrust yourself completely to God? And that's what's the issue, right? That if you take this Jesus thing seriously, if you were to take the invitation to follow him as seriously as Simon and Andrew and James and John and Matthew, man, what would that mean? How could you not frantically look at your checking account, watch your stocks, retirement plan? Don't do it. That's depressing. But what Jesus is telling us is that when we know him, Whatever the stock market does, whatever your relationships look like, there is hope. Unshakable hope. Hope of life with Him forever and hope of abundant life, even now. Can you afford to say no to Him? I wonder this morning, do you know Jesus? I'm convinced there are many church people who think they do, but don't. They know lots about Him, but they don't know what it means to depend on the shepherd for their daily bread. They don't know. And thankfully, the Scriptures give us a test. How can you know? How do you know that you know Jesus? John later wrote in 1 John 2, By this we know that we've come to know Him. Alright, here it is. By this you can tell for sure that you know Jesus if you keep His commandments. The one who says, I've come to know Him and doesn't keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in Him. But whoever keeps His word in Him, the love of God has been truly perfected. And by this we know that we're in Him. The one who says that He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way that He walked. Do you know Jesus like this? His sheep hear His voice. They see His works. They hear His words. They follow. Will you bow your head with me? And as you do, can I ask you a couple of questions? I wonder if you'd ask yourself, John says, this is how you can know that you know Jesus. You keep His commandments. My first question for you this morning is, do you pass that test? Do you pass the test? People who know Jesus live obediently to His commands. So I, are you living obediently to Christ? Do you have that thing in your mind? I, I know you do. That issue. That area where you're out of obedience to Christ. My second question is, what's keeping you from giving that up today? What is keeping you today from knowing Jesus? This morning I would challenge you as God's people, we prepare to take the Lord's Supper to examine yourself on that issue to confess your sin of disobedience to God.
to ask Him for forgiveness. To empower you to obey. To live as a person who knows Him. And maybe if you're honest, you don't know Jesus and you've never known Jesus. You've been around Him some and you've learned some things about Him, but you don't have the personal relationship that we've been talking about this morning, the kind of knowledge that leads to hope. But maybe today you're ready to make some kind of commitment to do that. You want to know Jesus. So maybe you'd take the form of a prayer. You'd say something like, Jesus, you know I don't know you, but I want to know you. I want the hope that I've heard about today. Help me to leave behind my old life to experience the new life you promised to give. Maybe you want somebody to pray with you. Maybe you need some help figuring out your next steps. I'd love to do that. The band is going to come in just a second and play a song. I'll be singing down here on the front row. Just come and take me by the hand. Tony is our prayer coordinator. She'll be in the back. If you'd like to be back there and sneak back and talk to her, she'd be glad to do that. But however you sense God leading you to commit yourself to knowing Jesus, I challenge you to obey today.